innovation happens when differences are mixed in a new way. But those differences can't be mixed unless there's some similarity to establish a relationship upon. Hello, welcome to On The Edge, a podcast all about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode we talk with somebody who is making sense of our increasingly connected world. Today, we're delighted to welcome one of the pioneers of social network analysis, Valdus Krebs, who is founder and chief scientist of the company OrgNet. He has studied many different types of networks, from the 9-11 terrorist cells to the innovation networks of Silicon Valley, both of which we discuss in this episode. He has concluded that you're only as smart as the networks that you're embedded in, and in a nutshell, he describes the art of networks to be to connect on your similarities and to benefit from your differences. In other words, he's analysed and demonstrated the value of cognitive diversity, which we call the difference dividend. His classic paper, Uncloaking Terrorist Networks, was produced using only public information and newspaper clippings, and has been called the most cited public analysis of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. So when I spoke with him recently, I started out by asking him to describe the story of what he did and what he discovered. Enjoy! So 9-11 happens, and everybody's watching, um, you know, CNN and all the other cable channels. And they keep talking about this uh, thing called terrorist networks. I'm kind of wondering, well, you know, what does a terrorist network look like? The the problem was I I didn't have any data because I I wasn't working for the, you know, the CIA or the NSA or anybody like that. And so so where where am I going to get my data? I noticed that um, as the... An analysis of what happened went on that uh, newspapers were starting to report, you know, um, who possible uh, suspects were that died on the planes and, you know, and, and a little bit about their pasts and so on. And I thought, ah. And so I started to every day just uh, gather data of what was, what was being reported. So, you know, initially they said, oh, there's, there's 10 suspects and then it was 15 and then it was 20 and then it, Finally went back down to the to the nineteen, and then they started to dig in. These nineteen people were, and so so all of a sudden, um, I'm getting data. I'm getting both node data, so information about the people themselves and 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 who they were, and then link data, and so how how they were connected. Oh, these two people studied together in Germany. These two people lived together in California. These two people were seen together at a Al-Qaeda meeting in Malaysia, ported into my network analysis software, and there's a, there's a network. And in a couple of months, I, I had a decent map. And what was interesting was that this map uh, did not look like any of the theories that uh, all of us uh, network experts had about what a terrorist network looks like, because everybody was kind of focused on the fact that Terrorists are uh, naturally covert and they want to hide. And so they minimize the, you know, the links that they have between cells. So everybody thought that the network looked one way. But what we found is that the network looked a lot like other networks that we have 
in our midst. And this network, which was really a project team, started to look like many other project teams that I had mapped for Fortune 500 companies. You know, we started thinking, well, this is, this is kind of weird. But when you think about it, you know, this was a group of people, too, that, that had a mission, that had to get things done, that had to get organized, that had to have the right skills, that had to have meetings, that had to coordinate, that had to do all the kind of things that a normal project team does. So it's really not that surprising that an evil project team looks, looks like a, a project team doing, doing good. Why was that a surprise then? Because I think your paper that you published was quite influential at the time, as I understand it. So obviously you discovered something that wasn't expected by you know, those government agencies that were responsible for, for tracking these terrorist suspects. So, so wh- why was that an unusual discovery that you made? Well, I, I think the unusual discovery was that, that it did look like other project teams. The main thing is they, they need to get something done. And when we as humans need to get something done, we all tend to behave the same way. Whether this getting something done is, is, is doing something good or doing something bad. The other surprise too was that open source data or public data could be used very well to put together these kinds of complex mm. pictures. So, you know, after I did this, naturally I got a lot of calls from all sorts of org- organizations in, in Washington that come down and, you know, kind of explain what I did, and, you know, train them in, in uh, how, to, how to do net network analysis. So you said the, the, one of the surprising things was the project teams. So what is the standard kind of network map for getting stuff done, whether it's good stuff or bad stuff, how would you describe that? Project teams and often end up in um, what uh, network scholars call a small world network, which uh, means that uh, clusters form with common interests, common goals. And then those clusters are connected to each other. So each of those clusters is like a small world, and then each of the small worlds are, are connected to each other. So again, what we saw was there were clusters what was what was kind of interesting, and this kind of showed to some of the kind of the covert aspects, was that the people that ended up on the planes together, they weren't necessarily a tight cluster, which which kind of made sense because you know they they wouldn't necessarily want those same people, especially if they weren't if they didn't know what the leaders knew, you know, to be together in the in the network. I mean, episode one of this podcast series was called Everything is Connected with James Burke. And in many ways, you're just one conversation away from pretty much everything. And, and that presents huge opportunities, but also considerable risks and not least where to focus your, your efforts. That's yeah. true where everything is connected to everything. But the, the key um, qualifier to that is not directly. And when things aren't directly connected, they, there's a distance between them. And distance really matters in, in networks. Because six degrees of separation is really a very large world. Because by the time any information or news gets from one to the other over six degrees, it's noise. There's no signal left. The fact that the whole world's connected by, by six steps or even, you know, some people say on the internet it's five or four steps is still so what? That to, you know, to effectively to talk to somebody, to effectively un- understand somebody, you, you have to share some kind of context. 
or some kind of you know sim- uh, similarity. If if you have that, and if you can establish trust and understanding between the individuals, then you could start to explore your your differences, and that's when that's when innovation happens. Because innovation happens when differences are mixed in a, in a new way. But those differences can't be mixed unless there's some similarity to establish a relationship upon. So similarity in, um, you know, network scholars call that homophily, basically birds of a feather flock together. If you have just birds of a feather flock together, what you end up developing over time are, are echo chambers and groupthink and, and, and things like that. So how do you create that interesting mix that doesn't happen naturally? You and I both agree, agree on A, B, and C, but you know about D and I know about E, and we mix D and E together and all of a sudden, wow, here's a solution to, you know, to a problem. And we've now come up with a, with a great solution. So the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. One plus one equals three, all of that good stuff. In some um, cases. Sometimes yeah. one and one is less than two. Sometimes it's greater than two. Sometimes it's only two. It's, but it's, you know, it's, it's probably like a lot like cooking. You know, you get the right ingredients in the right order, in the right amount, and you'll probably come up with a reasonable soup. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, that's all you can do. I was just going to ask, what about the fact that, you know, certainly politically, the internet seems to have created more polarization. We're not benefiting from those differences. We're just kind of sitting in our respective political tribes and, and not even talking to each other in our echo chambers or becoming even more entrenched. So what's what's happening there and, and what do we do about it? That is a problem. So around politics, you know, we're we're choosing to focus on our on our differences and and not so much on our on our similarities. You know, pe- people listen for certain words and certain phrases and all and automatically go ah, you know, he or she is one of them. So so I'm not going to talk to them because I hate far right or the far left or the radical middle. And that, that happens in org organizations too. Is where you know some somebody brings up an idea and it's like oh. You know, we tried that and it doesn't work, or that's not the way we do things around here. Often, too, you know, we've we've seen with clients where where two people start having a conversation and they end up finding that you know they they have a common experience and they also find that they have a common problem, but that one of the groups solved the problem six months ago or a year ago, and that group can now help the other group solve solve their problem. This is where, you know, the power of the networks within organizations comes in, where you have to have a culture that allows this kind of transfer of knowledge and information across group, because it's, it's the culture that kind of determines where the management feels, feels comfortable. It sounds from hearing you speak that a lot of your work is working within maybe a single organization? Yeah, that's it's actually changing now. We're doing more and more work on a, on a larger scale. So I've been working on quite a few projects looking at networks, not just within organizations, but within cities and regions and how different organizations and the people that run them connect or don't connect. Let's say a region wants to compete on something they feel they're very good at, but often those regions that, that want to compete that way have internal conflicts that don't allow for that or don't allow for that to be optimized. So they want to compete on X, but they have three different cliques within the region that are all fighting each other on X, on who's, who's going to be the better provider of X. 
And so, you know, we often point to, uh, to early Sil Silicon Valley where, you know, where a lot of organizations seem to work together well. I mean, Silicon Valley has, has its own issues today, and we saw that, you know, in the, in the last U U.S. election, but early Silicon Valley was a, was a great place and a, and a great model that, that many people have, have tried to copy, but it's, it's very important that those right conditions are there. And those right conditions are an open sharing of, of knowledge and information for the betterment of the whole. Other places have tried to copy, but mostly failed in different ways. Is it not true in a sort of networked world that you may have a kind of long tail of places or organizations, but you get sort of power consolidating in a few powerful nodes? So that's kind of one question. And the other question is, how, how does the, the silo-busting collaboration across organizations in a place differ from the silo busting within an organization? You know, silos are good for doing things that you already know how to do and doing them well and efficient. When you have to figure out what you want to do next, silos are, are awful. Often uh, what keep you from figuring out what to do next because you, you keep thinking, well, if we keep incrementally improving what we already do, that should be fine. And it should be fine as long as your marketplace doesn't change. But, but as soon as it changes, and it changes in a way that, that you're not prepared for, then, then you're in trouble. So yeah, you, you need this mix of um, doing what you do well. You also need this mix of, you know, what else could we do? What else can we use our knowledge and, and wisdom to do? So I, I look at Apple had gone through all sorts of struggles in the, in the 80s and so on, but they emerged as a, as a very good computer manufacturer in the 90s. And uh, then all of a sudden, they, they come out with this device called an iPod. And people were scratching their heads going, well, why is Apple doing this? They're all about computers. Well, without the iPod, there, there wouldn't have been the iPhone. And we know that Apple now is still a computer manufacturer, but they're, they're no longer called Apple Computer. They're called Apple <laughs> because their, their main uh, the devices now are, 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 are the phones, are the, are the portable devices, the phones, the iPads. And then the services that, that run all around those. So that's kind of the secret is the leaders of organizations, if they care about their organizations, not only if they care about their immediate bonuses, but, but Steve Jobs wanted to leave a good, good legacy. So he was always thinking, what else can we do? What else can we um, in, in, innovate on? So they came out with this, this iPod and he wasn't even sure I mean, at that point, I'm sure when they were designing the iPod, they, they weren't thinking iPhone. But that had to be done. That step had to be done before the iPhone could even come into their imagination. Is there anything different about that, you know, the culture within an organization like Apple versus the culture in a place like Silicon Valley? So based on your analysis of networks and what you need to do to foster innovation, and is it just simply a case of operating at different scales? Or is there something different going on? Again, the uh, the iPod example is is all is something that happened within uh, within Silicon Valley, and um, I have a I actually have a whole presentation about the kind of the network birth of, of the iPod. To put it into a few sentences, basically what what happened was that there were a lot of people that worked on a lot of different products at a lot of different companies, and they all happened to remain connected to each other as they moved on to their to their new companies 
as this idea for the iPod started to develop, people realized that, oh, I should really call so-and-so because back when she and I worked together at Company X, we were starting to talk about this. And I should also talk you know, to this other person because when he and I worked together at Company Y, we were talking about this. So people were remembering their their previous connections and this is this is another thing about networks is that often some of your most powerful ties are your dormant ties are ties that you've had you you've had you have a good working relationship you have trust with them but they've become dormant over time because you've each kind of gone on to your own new gig a lot of times these these old ties have have information that might help you with a with a new opportunity and that's basically what happened around the uh, iPod Different people connected with different others from their past, brought it all together, and all of a sudden, you know, the iPod was was actually quite amazing because it was developed in a period of eight months. The right people came together, you know, it was done. One thing I've noticed over the last decade is, you know, 10 years ago, there was just a lot more optimism that, you know, the world is all connected and we're all, you know, six degrees separated or four degrees separated or whatever you believe. In the last few years, a sort of backlash against that. Have you noticed that kind of shift from optimism and hopeful to, to, to sort of negative and, and what can and should we do about it? Yeah, well, I've definitely seen that. And uh, when the internet was young in the 90s, I was, a, I was very much a, a techno-optimist. And, and again, it just looks, you know, we, we have to understand that, that technology has changed, but we as humans have, have not changed that much. So um, our behavior, our innate uh, response to things, especially uh, our response to things that are different, you know, is still there. You know, I had mentioned that term homophily before, and that's basically the, the sociologist's uh, $20 word for uh, for birds of a feather flock together. Homophily has just lately has 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 grown with unbounded, un, unstoppable rate, and so we're getting this this immense polarization. Yeah, we're we're, we're getting people that are that are you know that are finding each other on the net that are feeling good about that. So again, you know, before before the internet, if you were living in some you know, small town America, and you had this crazy idea about X, there probably weren't that many people around that shared your views. If you express these views, you were shunned. But if you didn't express these views, you didn't have anybody to discuss them with. Now you get on the internet and all of a sudden, you know, it's not like you're the only person that has these views about X, but you can find hundreds of others, maybe thousands or even millions that share these views. And so all of a sudden, you know, you create this chat group or this this online uh, community, you know, that talks about this and then your views about X get more and more radicalized and, and intense. But now you feel better about it because you have this, this group that, that shares your views and now that you're only talking with this group, you think that everybody on the internet shares these views. And when you run across somebody that says, no, it's not X, it's Y, you know, you think they're totally crazy and they need to be uh, made, made to shut up because that's just not the way the world is. It's, it's kind of allowed the, the negative to happen as opposed to the positive. Now, the positive is, is still out there, too. There's, you know, there's, there's people uh, like right here, like you and I. 
talking from the from the UK to the US about certain ideas and and you know and sharing in information and and learning from each other. I was I was just at a conference in Montreal, a conference about with uh, social network analysts. It was mostly academics, but there were the practitioners there too. And, and so we came from all over the world and we came together and, and shared information and knowledge and new connections were made and, and there will be new collaborations that come out of these new connections. So And these new collaborations and these new connections will be maintained by the internet because not everybody can always travel when they want to talk to somebody. I guess I'm, you know, this is the nub of what really fascinates me, which is, you know, what do we do about that? I agree there's great positive benefits of connection, but also, you know, great risks and dangers with it. I, we, we've kind of got two choices. We can either try something or we can sort of be in fear and kind of retreat. So action or an, or analysis. And I'm not saying analysis isn't helpful, but I just think when faced with uncertainty, a lot of organizations will commission another research report as a way of kind of delaying taking action. And I, I think that is a often a mistake. And so what I am interested in is how do we, I guess I feel the future is in our hands. How, how can we help each other to navigate the more positive opportunities of our connected world and, you know, avoid the, the risks and the dangers and not be kind of overwhelmed by them? And I think part of the problem is everything is so fluid. It's just very hard to kind of get people's jobs, people's lives, people's careers and relationships and uh, uh, semi-permanently in transition from something to something else. And that is quite stressful, really. And there's a, a lot of uh, anxiety that comes with that. And we're also being increasingly distracted as we're being advertised to uh, from you know every, every different direction. So how can we know our own minds and sort of take action to build the iPod or build, build the future that we, that we want and need? And so th- this for me is the existential crisis of our time. And it's, you know, what I'm sort of ultimately fascinated by. So just kind of curious, because you've been, you know, studying this for longer, longer than I have and longer than most people. How do we move forward as as individuals, uh, sort of navigating that as organizations and society at large? Uh, Well, yeah, and and, and not only have we been studying it, but but we've been trying to apply it. Well, I I think it's both a a bottom-up and a top-down process. Mm -hmm. So, So the bottom up is that, you know, we as individuals can decide on on how we connect and who we connect to. We can do a lot of connecting locally without anybody's permission. So I can get a neighborhood group going here that addresses a problem that the group has. So instead of uh, worrying about our council person and have them take care of it, maybe we or- organize here locally. We connect to each other. Maybe we solve the problem, or we go in mass to the council person and say, "Hey, you know, there's this problem going on in our neighborhood, and and we need it fixed." And so we we can all start to connect bottom up. And as we connect bottom up, you know, we can share information, and we can also share the power of a of a connected group from the top down. Our, our leadership has to stop focusing on the negative, on the, on the fear, on the difference. You know, again, you look at, you look at someone like John F. Kennedy. You know, he said, um, we're, we're going to go to the moon and we're going to take this diverse knowledge base and all these people and we're going to bring them together and we're going to figure out how, how we're going to land on the moon. And they, and they did it. So that was, you know, that was someone saying, you know, let's, let's focus on our similarities. Utilize our differences and charge forward. 
That's the kind of leadership we need all over the world. Whereas, you know, there's, there's plenty of examples of other leaders that are saying, oh, no, look out for the other. You know, they're out to get you. They're, they want to take your job. They want to do all sorts of bad things to you. So, you know, focus on your differences and forget the similarities because the sim similarities really aren't there. Well, the, the similarities are there and we need to focus those as, as, as job number one. And then we need to look at uh, how our, our, our differences can actually help us build upon the base of similarities that, that we already have. Start you know, making those connections either in your, you know, either in your home, in your neighborhood, in your place of work, in your place of worship, wherever you can make these things to make things happen locally and then build up from there and then elect leaders that, that have a positive work together, focus on sim similarities, vision to move forward. Because, you know, with, uh, with, uh, with like the climate crisis, you can even say that it's in our own best interest to survive in the long term to change our fo focus of leadership to the, to the Kennedy model away from the current model. So you said earlier you used to be a sort of techno optimist. What would you describe your your worldview now with regards to technology and networks? Well, I'm I'm probably more of a techno realist. So I see the benefit of the of the internet, but I also realize that the internet is the greatest surveillance machine that's ever been invented. And so, you know, you have to kind of balance those two views. You know, can we keep the world from falling into the surveillance hole or or can we get it, you know, get the teeter totter going the other way towards more shared knowledge and innovation and, and things like that? So. So, yeah, it's a it's a tough place. It's uh, you know, it's just like hu human nature. There's uh, bad. There's good. Let's try to focus on the good and, and maximize that and keep the balance in, in that direction. But there's uh, this technology that's been invented has, has a lot of very dark downsides. And, and we have to remember kind of how the Internet was originally developed. It was, it was originally developed in academic communities. Where, where people basically knew each other and trusted each other or worked in communities where you trusted the knowledge of the, of the other person. So there were you know, computer scientists working at UCLA that trusted uh, the computer scientists working at Case Institute of Technology at that time in Cleveland that tr trusted the scientists working at MIT and, and so on. And so it was a it was a very it was a kind of a homogeneous group that basically the the word of the land was trust and I trust your knowledge. But now we've taken that environment where kind of everybody trusted each other and we've thrown it out to the world where naturally everybody doesn't trust each other. And so the internet was designed in this very safe space and now it's in this very normal space which has a lot of unsafe portions to it you know the original design the original intent was great but and again it was never i don't think it was ever really intended to go out to the world at large and and once it did there wasn't enough time to say whoa you know we need to look at at the negative aspects of, of human behavior too before we roll this out you know it just started to go out there and all of a sudden it was everywhere you know every everybody had email every, everybody was browsing the web and and then social media and then who knows what'll come in the future but this 
system built in a safe space is out there now and it's not operating in all safe spaces. Thank you, Valdis, for sharing how serendipity happens on the edges and innovation occurs at the intersections of networks. I think it's really helpful to hear about both the positive and negative consequences of our connected world with some very practical examples. I hope you enjoyed listening to this third episode of On the Edge, and it's helped you to consider the value of different perspectives and diverse data sets. So before we go, please can I ask that you rate, comment, and subscribe to this podcast, and also share it with others who you think might like it as well, using the hashtag OnTheEdge. This will encourage us to keep on making new connections and to find more interesting people to talk to and to share those conversations with you. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal, a community and platform to help navigate the uncertainty and complexity of our connected world. Thank you for listening. Until next time, keep on connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye.